Well, good morning. It is a joy to be with you guys. As Jake said, uh, I'm not Kevin. Clearly, I have way more hair. Um, it's my first shot at Kevin, my only shot at Kevin this morning. Uh, but uh, my name again is Trey Corey. I'm the campus pastor here at Southwood, and it is a joy to get to jump in with you guys this morning. We're going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verses 28 to 23. Matthew chapter 11. We're going to pick it up in verses 28 to, uh, 28 to 30. As you guys are turning there, I'll just say that this is probably one of my favorite times of year. I love that the holidays are around the corner. I love that Thanksgiving is here. And I know a lot of us have some very special, if not odd, Turkey Day traditions. To that end, I ran across this week a little deal from uh, Fallon, uh, his hashtag Turkey Day Traditions, uh, in, in which different viewers tweeted in as to some of their favorite Turkey Day traditions that are out there. Here's a few for you. One person wrote in, my mom makes us get up at 4 a.m. to dance with the raw turkey, holding it by its wings and legs because it tenderizes the turkey before it goes into the oven. 33 years now, just dancing with the turkey. All right, how about this one? My dad, brother, and grandpa always fight over the turkey neck. To settle it, my grandma throws it over her head backwards and then has them try to catch it like a bridal bouquet. That's amazing. I don't know if we can get the confidence monitor up. It'd be helpful, too. Uh, here's an, another one for you guys. Uh, my family, and I highly suggest this one for you guys this week. My family has a tradition called ham slap, where you take a piece of ham and slap an unsuspecting family member in the face with it while yelling, you just got ham slapped. That's fantastic. Last but certainly not least, this one. A tradition we're trying to break is that the last few years, my 90-year-old grandmother has come downstairs on Thanksgiving morning without pants saying... This old bird wants some bird. I don't know about you guys, but I think a lot of us have some very odd Turkey Day traditions. A lot of us have our own different things that either we would love to stop forevermore or we'd love to hold forevermore for all the generations of our family. I don't know about you guys, but as I walked through these, I began to laugh a little bit. But as I began to think about you guys, I think there's one key Turkey Day tradition that Fallon and those that were tweeting in completely miss as it relates to college students. And that's simply this the tradition of rest. That if there's anything that maybe you guys are looking forward to more at the end of a semester, especially as Thanksgiving this year, as a little bit later in November, is the opportunity to get away, to shut it down, to unplug, and to rest. What I want to do this morning as you guys step toward Thanksgiving is, frankly, I want to jack with you a little bit. <laughs> and talking about, all, honestly, as we think about the scriptures, how do the scriptures portray rest? And I want to, in a sense, reshape and redefine for you what rest looks like, biblically speaking. And then I want to challenge you as to your approach for it, not just your perspective towards it, but how you approach it, to give you practical tracks to run on, to really find rest in a way that I think Jesus is promising. In fact, we're going to open up in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, and what is an incredibly familiar passage. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along, or if you want to look up on the screen, you can't hear. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, Jesus offers, I think, one of the clearest promises of rest. It's a passage that's incredibly familiar to a lot of us, but I'm going to argue to you guys that though we're familiar with the passage and the promise of rest, I think there's a reason why for many of us that our experience of rest seems so different than the promise that's extended. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not hard to imagine stepping into a room like this of college students that's approaching Thanksgiving break at the end of a fall semester to ask how many of you feel heavy, heavy laden and weary. I think almost every single one of us would raise our hands. 
If I were to ask how many of us are looking for and hoping for just a slice of rest and an opportunity to rest and be refreshed over Thanksgiving, every single one of us would raise our hands. But the reality is, whether it's Thanksgiving break or whether it's the reality of every single course of of days of our life, that every single one of us is often always needing rest, and yet Jesus is always extending a promise of rest, and yet our experience of rest could not be more divergent and frankly not corresponding to the promise that's been extended. So the question I simply want to ask this morning, the question I want to pose, not just for us as we head into Thanksgiving break, but as we walk with the Lord, as we walk out every day of the year, is why is it we're so desperate for rest, Jesus offers it, but we have such a struggle to find it and experience it? Why is it? Ultimately, we're going to walk through a lot of ideas this morning from a book by a guy named Mark Buchanan who wrote the book, The Rest of God. Someone has read it and likes it. That's what I'm talking about. I'll pay you five bucks later. I owe you. But ultimately, the, the, the subtitle of it is Restoring Your Soul by Restoring Sabbath. That there's something broken in so many of us, and I'm going to argue because it's because we don't know what rest looks like or how to experience rest. And what Buchanan does in this book is begin to unpack for us a biblical view of rest and begin to really address the reasons why we don't rest. If you're looking for a read this Thanksgiving break, if you're looking for a read this winter break, I'd probably submit to you there may be no better read for a bunch of college students than this book on the rest of God. What Buchanan's going to do in the book and what I want to undo, uh, do for us as we kind of walk through this morning is kind of walk us through a key set of questions. The first is, why don't we rest? The second is, what is rest? And the third is, how do we rest? Why don't we? What is it? And how do we actually experience it and pursue rest? That's where we're going to go this morning. So as we begin, why don't we rest? Why is it we're so desperate to find rest but often fail to find it at all? I think ultimately Buchanan's going to say that you and I have a distorted view about rest that we're going to correct as we walk through this morning. Simply put, he says this, that in a culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is laziness, rest is seen as sloth. There's this thing that Jesus offers us, but there's this thing in us that to experience it or to receive it feels like it's shameful, feels like it's not worthy of something that we can receive or experience, that there's something in every single one of us that believes that that rest is something that is for the lazy. Uh, How many of us wear the badge of busyness or the badge of of high capacity as if it's the best thing about us, right? That we almost outcompete one another about how busy we are because we're so proud of how absolutely jam-packed our calendars are and by how little space we have to rest as if it's something that's good. Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus says this, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And what Mark is saying here as Jesus is being quoted is this, that Sabbath and rest is a gift that God has provided us. If you think back to even to the creational narrative, God's going to work for six days and then he's going to rest. Does he rest because he was tired? No. He rested to enjoy the product of his work, to enjoy and look upon what he had done, and to proclaim that it was good. If God rested who is not finite, who does not get weary, who does not get heavy laden, if it was okay for him to rest, then I think it's absolutely okay for us to rest. But we don't, have, we don't only have a distorted view, but we have a distorted value. Again, I think you and I wear busyness as if it's a badge. We think that we're better than others if we're busier than others. We think we're better than others if our calendar is more chopped full than the next guy or the next girl. As if it's something that's good. And ultimately, I want to argue that it's eating away at our very souls in a way that we don't even realize. Because when we don't rest, there's a set of dangers that we face that we don't even realize. And the first is this, that when you and I don't rest, that we lose passion. 
the very heart that is the engine of our emotions and our feelings and the things that we're most passionate about, when we fail to rest, it slowly slowly but surely gets chipped away at and erodes and pulls back and is hollowed out in terms of the things that we're most passionate about. Buchanan says this, "How How much do I care about the things that I care about? Busyness makes us stop caring about the things that we care about. Busyness kills the heart. My wife and I had the opportunity uh, upon graduating from seminary to spend two years in China where we learned language, got to help plant churches, got to be a part of the partnership that Victoria was talking about in terms of sending students every summer. Uh, We were those that went not just for summers, but we went for a two-year run as well. We got to see God do amazing things. But as we were learning language, one of the things that stood out to me the most was much of the Chinese language is pictorial with different characters that are put together to explain what a word means. The most interesting one to me in the entire two years that we were there was what the word and how the word busyness was depicted in the Chinese language. It essentially was the combination of two characters. One was the character of the heart and the other character was the one for killing. The, the very essence of the language, what the Chinese rep- recognized and what they realized was that busyness at its very essence, at its very core, is that which absolutely kills our heart. It erodes that which we're most passionate about. It hollows us out from the inside so that what we care most about, we no longer have the umph, the emotion, the drive to really move towards it with passion. It hollows us out. It's fascinating to me. A story is told of, of a person whose business was uh, being those that re, uh, put fabric back on seats and chairs. And this uh, upholstery person who has run in this business, uh, the story is told that his primary client was that of a cardiologist's office. And in fact, what he would do is that he would go in week after week, month after month, and he would continue to change out the chair fabric of this cardiologist's office over and over again. And here's why, because the very patients themselves would sit so taut, so stressed, moving constantly as they were waiting on a diagnosis that they actually had to change out the fabric of these chairs over and over again. Here's the quote. Apparently, heart patients are so impatient that even while listening to their doctor's life-threatening diagnosis or life-saving prescription, they sit taut and restless, poised to flee, chafing at the delay. At the edge of their seats, and the very reason their hearts are so sick is written in the threadbare upholstery of the chairs that they were sitting on. Most of us aren't in the place where we're having heart attacks, where we're seeing cardiologists, at least not yet. Maybe for your table hosts, they are, all right? But ultimately, when you and I begin to lead a life in which there's a failure to balance work and rest, in which we fail to take care of ourselves and to to actually build rhythms of rest in our life, something begins to chip away at our very hearts and our very lives and our very souls that we cannot repair and get back quickly. It's not just that you and I lose passion, but ultimately also you and I lose perspective in a very, very dangerous way. Buchanan says, the worst hallucination that busyness conjures is the conviction that I am God. That all depends on me. How will the right things happen at the right time if I'm not pushing and pulling? So you think back to your semesters, you think back to the things that are still in front of you. How many of those moments have you thought, I've got to shut it down and take a break, but I'm just so stressed and so anxious. If I stop, what's going to happen? Everything's going to fall apart. There's something in us as we fail to choose to rest that begins to fall into the hallucination and the lie that we are God. And that if I'm not in perpetual motion, if I'm not in constant activity, then God cannot fulfill his purposes in the world. God cannot fulfill that which he's promised he's going to do in my life and everything will fall apart. And it's an absolute lie. It's an absolute lie. 
The busyness begins to retrain for us who we think that we are, and busyness begins to retrain who we think God to be. And so I want to simply start here this morning and just simply ask you two basic questions. Why can't you stop and be still? Why is it so hard to kill the engine and to stop and to sit, to listen to the Lord, to not be in perpetual motion, to not constantly be around others? Why is it so hard to stop? And ultimately, I want to challenge you as you head home for Thanksgiving, as you look back over the course of this fall, I want to challenge you to think about the rhythms that you've let build the course of an entire semester, and to simply begin to ask the question as you have some time to reflect over Thanksgiving, what was the cost that I paid for my busyness? What were the relationships that were hollowed out? How was my own passion and my own drive and my own uh, dreams for what God could do? How were they hollowed out? How did they begin to erode as well? See, when you and I cannot break the constant cycle of activity and perpetual motion, you and I do pay a toll whether we realize it or not. And often busyness so disorients us, it keeps us spinning in such a way that we don't even see. And sometimes we don't see until we stop. I'm going to challenge you to take some time over Thanksgiving and simply say, what were the rhythms that I let build over the course of the fall? Were they healthy or not? And what might have been the toll, what might have been the cost that I began to pay if I can really have the honesty to look at it and look back on it over the course of the semester? See, you and I can't really begin to grasp what it looks like to actually rest until you and I begin to grasp why we don't rest. And the last thing I want to say on this idea as you think about stopping and why you can't stop, your sense of indispensability is a direct assault on the sovereignty of God. Your sense of your indispensability that nothing can go forward unless you're engaged is a direct assault on God's sovereignty. You cannot have a sense of your dispensability and God's sovereignty and hold them together. They will cross each other. They will do conflict with one another. And only one is going to be true and only one will last, right? So if you and I can begin to grasp the danger of our inability to rest and begin to grasp why we don't rest, then the question becomes, what is rest? I'm going to give you guys back to Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. Why was the ability of Sabbath and the command of Sabbath so absolutely important? If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to read for you just a few verses on the idea of Sabbath and the Ten Commandments. Here's what Moses says to the nation. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. And in it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and they rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. What is Sabbath? What is rest? Ultimately, I think as we look at Exodus chapter 20, that we see that it is a stop work order on that which is common responsibilities in our life. That that which is commonly upon us, that for a day out of a week we say, we're done. We're going to put it aside. And it's not just a disengagement of the common responsibilities of our life, but it's also a re-engagement with that which is uncommon with God himself. That to rest is not to just pull out and shut it all down and just uh, flush the mind for a week, right? That, that to biblically rest means there is a disengagement from what is commonly upon me, and there is an engagement as my eyes are lifted to that which is uncommon to the Lord himself. 
The true biblical rest is a disengagement of one kind and an engagement of another kind, but we often don't hold those in tension together. Either we don't stop the common responsibilities that stay on us, and if we do, then we just check out entirely. As you think about Thanksgiving, as you think about the ways that you want to rest, how many of them would you say are markers for the kinds of activities that would be more disengagement? How many of them, or if any of them, are markers of the kinds of things that would be of an engagement in terms of watching and knowing and moving more deeply in a relationship with the Lord? But typically we run toward disengagement. We run to checking out, to shutting it down, to killing the engine, to just going off the grid entirely for two days, right? That's what we're most desperately longing for. That's what we're most desperately looking for. But it misses the point. It's interesting, so we think about what it is, is that there's a sense from Exodus that what rest looks like in terms of a kind of disengagement and a kind of engagement actually questions and challenges us as to how we think about what leisure and amusement actually is. I love this quote from Buchanan, and he says this, that one of the largest obstacles to true Sabbath keeping is leisure. Leisure is what Sabbath becomes when we no longer know how to sanctify time. Leisure is Sabbath bereft of the sacred. It is vacation, literally a vacating and evacuation. Leisure has become despotic in our age, enslaving us and exhausting us and demanding more from us than it gives. How many of you have been so exhausted and you wanted to shut it all down and you ran towards something and you gave yourself toward it and then as you walked out of it, you thought, I'm more tired than I was before I showed up to this, right? I don't know, you guys, uh, at least for me, when I was a student, I wanted to binge watch as much things as I could. Uh, Victoria made a joke about Netflix, so here's a meme for you about Netflix as you think about Thanksgiving break. Netflix gives you 15 seconds between episodes to decide if you're doing anything with your life today. All right? Y'all joke, but we all know that moment and that feeling where like, I'm going to watch one more, right? And then I'm just going to watch one more. And then the day is gone, right? I mean, just completely gone. You're like, I'm still in my sweatpants, and it's like 6 p.m., right? What's happened, right? Um, how many of us have walked through those moments? I don't know if you guys remember the TV show for a while. It's a little bit older now, but the TV show 24, maybe when you guys were growing up. Um, thank you. Uh, we were giant fans of the Jack Bauer Power Hour, as we called it. Uh, we had neighbors that would love to watch 24 in what they would call real time which means they would actually let a season completely end and then they would buy the season and then they would begin one evening to watch episode one of a evening of a, uh, episode one of a season and they would watch through the evening through the next morning through the day and they would end the next evening having finished a season all right so we would see them the first evening just excited looking forward to it looking forward to getting away to watch 24 excited about the season they heard great things and then we would see them the next evening 24 hours of watching 24 Eyes bloodshot, like hair everywhere. I mean, just stressed out of their mind on the verge of a heart attack, right? There was nothing restful about that experience, right? They were absolutely stressed out of their minds, probably needed to go see a counselor and wondering whether the world was about to fall apart, okay? I think for many of us, as we pursue rest, we pursue it in ways that actually don't refresh us and restore us at all. I'm the first guy that will tell you I like to watch a little bit of TV every single night, okay? I'm a giant sports guy. Cowboys, Patriots, 3.30. That's what I'm doing today, all right? That's what I'm talking about. All right, I, I'm the first to say I, I love to get away, but I think there's something in the human condition. There's something in every single one of us that leisure and entertainment can move us to a place so that we just check out. And all of a sudden, that which we wanted to be free of life from has actually enslaved us. Notice this quote from a guy who writes a book called Amused Ourselves to Death. He says this. That people will come to love their oppression, to adore their technologies that undo their capacities to think. 
The truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance as we would become a trivial culture having failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions and pleasures. Here's what's actually fascinating about this quote. It was a guy who wrote in the 50s talking about what's going to happen to men and women because of the TV as it entered the living room of their homes. He wrote this in the 50s. And he had no idea what the iPhone was going to do to us, right? Constant internet, constant social media, constant ability now to stream TV or whatever show I want to watch right here in my hip at any moment, at any time. How many of you guys, if you lose your phone, just about lose your ever-loving mind, right? It goes gone for 10 minutes. You're like, I don't know what I'm going to do, right? My whole social life, my whole calendar, my whole entire life, my entire diversion and entertainment is in that thing. I don't know what I'm going to do. I think the author there recognized that there was something in the human condition that as we look to pursue rest, there's a tendency to disengage that is appropriate and good, but it often moves unchecked into a place that doesn't bring restorement, refreshment, but it actually brings further fatigue because it doesn't allow us to pay attention to what is most important. In fact, Buchanan says it this way as we think about, well, how do we engage? He says this, that Sabbath imparts the rest of God. Actual physical, mental, spiritual rest, but also the things of God's nature and presence that we miss in our busyness. This is where we engage. Sabbath is a day set aside for feasting and resting and worship and play. It is a gift from God. It is also an attitude, a perspective, an orientation of the heart when the world around us is unrestful and swirling. That as you think about Thanksgiving break, what I'm not saying is don't watch any TV. (laughs) What I'm saying is to look at Thanksgiving break through the lens of the gifts of God, of all that he's done in your life, and that you would feast, that you would sing, that you would watch football, that you would enjoy food, that you would enjoy family in a way that they are the gifts of God that you would engage with and be refreshed by. That it's okay to laugh, it's okay to sing, it's okay to dance, that all of those things are the kinds of things that we enjoy, that we step into, but also there's a place as we engage in those things that we recognize they're from the creator of God who's given us all good things, and all good gifts come from him. And that there's a place in our disengagement that we're to engage in a way that lifts our eyes, to see our creator who's made us and who's created us for a relationship that draws us to him, to hear his voice, to walk with him, and to know him more deeply. And so that as you and I begin to think about what rest is, it's a kind of disengagement, but it's also a kind of engagement, and we have to hold those in tension. It's not that you've got to be in your Bible for three hours a day, every day of Thanksgiving, but there's a space and a discipline and a diligence to engage and to lift our eyes in meaningful, consistently purposeful ways. One of the things that I do every single morning is I go on a prayer walk with my cup of coffee, because if I sit down to pray in the morning, I'm toast. I'm going to fall asleep, all right? So I literally move my body to keep my eyes lifted and to keep in communion with the Lord because I've got to be in motion even as I pray, even as I process with the Lord. Then I want to challenge you to think about ways. How do you stay engaged? How do you stay alert? How can you stay engaged as to the things of God, as to his voice and what he's saying in your life and what he's trying to teach you and show you as you walk through this semester? So how do you and I actually rest? I want to give you five basic ideas this morning, five basic tips or practical suggestions that can frame and structure how you think about Thanksgiving break, all right? Let's get real practical. First, stop. I don't think this one's going to be very hard for some of you guys, this uh, Thanksgiving break, that, that you've built in scheduled time that is unscheduled, right? That you're going to have blocks of time that you can blow, that you can waste, that you're not stressed, that you're not managing time at every turn. Second of all, for, for please, for the love of God, sleep, right? 
how many of you guys, the first night you get home, hey, love you guys, and you're just done, and you're waking up noon the next day, all right, it's okay. That actually there's something meaningfully significant about the fact that you'd rest and that your body would have physical rest so that you could be ready to see the things of God. So sleep. Stop sleep. Third, see. Take meaningful moments to build time so that you can see the sovereignty of God and you could recognize your dispensability. That you would see correctly and you would see appropriately and you cannot see the sovereignty of God and your dispensability if you continue to run at the frantic pace that we often keep up. Our speed and our busyness causes us to lose perspective so that we do not see ourselves and we do not see the Lord in the way that we ought. So build time in so that you can see who God is, the things of God, the way that he sees the world, the way that he sees you. I love this quote. The truly purposeful have an iconic secret. They manage time less and they pay attention more. It's that they notice they're fully awake. Busyness blinds us. Busyness kills us. Our inability to rest slowly but surely erodes our soul, blinds our perspective so that we don't see. I know last year Kevin and them did a series on uh, decision making and part of being able to see and hear the voice of God is the ability to stop and be slow so that the world stops spinning and that you could hear the quiet, still, gentle voice of the Lord. In terms of what he's saying about you, in terms of what he's saying about the world, in terms of what he's calling you to. Fourth, and this is a huge one, how do you and I rest? You and I have to slay the taskmasters of guilt and anxiety. Why is it we often can't slow down? Why is it we often cannot stop? Why is it we often cannot put it down? One is that we think that we're indispensable. That if we stop, then what will happen? Will will anything continue? But the other thing I'd say is that the moment that you and I recognize that maybe we ought to stop and be still, there's something that flames up in us that comes at us from two different directions. For some of us, it comes at us from the direction of guilt. That there's a voice of guilt that erupts in you that says, who do you think you are that you should stop? Man, do you not notice that nothing's done yet? You haven't finished what you've been asked to do. How can you stop right now? There's a voice of guilt that shows up, that begins to spin, that begins to probe and push and push, that says, no, 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 you can't stop. You've not earned a stop moment. You've not earned a rest. You've got to keep driving. You've got to keep pushing. You've got to keep going and going and going. It's interesting, I think some of this comes from our family of origin. Uh, Both my wife and I and our families could not have been more different. In my home, we had the TV on constantly for a lot of time, all right? We had no problem stopping. Uh, For my wife's family, if you were found sitting, you were given a job, all right? Um, And so as an only child that would show up to family affairs, I'd learn just to hide out, all right? If the only way I could stop is to hide out, that's how I got away, all right? Um, But ultimately, I think for many of us, we kind of go to these two different directions. We came out of families that had these two different courses and and, and motives. One was, for some of us, that you weren't allowed to stop. To stop was to actually to fail, that you were driven and driven and driven, and all of a sudden it moves your calibration and your sense of the rhythm of rest and work inappropriately. So for some of us, we had no problem stopping. We watched hours of TV. I had a TV in my bedroom growing up. I had TV on all the time. I had no problem stopping. But it ran a course and it moved to past boundaries that were healthy and fruitful for me, especially as we stepped into having a family, right? But there's a different balance of what it looks like. And for some of us, we come to these two different extremes. For some of us, it's anxiety. It's not just guilt. Anxiety is that voice that says, if you stop, then what is going to happen? Everything is going to fail. If you stop, if you don't keep driving and driving, your grades will slip. You'll fail your classes. You won't have a job. You'll be back home living with your parents when you're 30, right? <laughs> That's what anxiety does. That's where anxiety moves. That's the voice of anxiety. 
I love this quote as we think about the nation of Israel who came out of slavery with taskmasters that were driving and driving that never allowed them to stop, that they had to be retrained to take Sabbath and to rest. Notice what Buchanan says here. He says, the lie that the taskmasters want you to swallow is that you cannot rest until your work's all done. But the work's never done and never quite done right. It's always more than you can finish, and Sabbath is a stop work order in the midst of work that's never complete, never polished. Sabbath is not the break that we're allotted at the tail end of completing all of our obligations. It's the rest we take smack dab in the middle of them, without apology, without guilt, and for no better reason than God told us we could. My wife and I were talking a little bit just as we've been trying to run a startup, and as I have a big job here as well, there's a load of things on us. And maybe for many of us, Sabbath or the command to rest and to build the rhythms of work and rest for many of us might be uh, the most greatly um, unconfessed sin in the Christian church. Could it be a Christian version of speeding, right? (laughs) Uh, In which we all speed. We're all going home. We're all going to go over the speed limit, right? And it's just like, that's just what's going to happen. And hopefully I don't get a ticket, right? Could it be that this idea of Sabbath and rest is kind of a Christian version of speeding? That none of us think that we need to rest, none of us think that we ought to rest, that we think we're going to be okay, and we don't realize the fines that we're accruing because they don't show up immediately. But they slowly but surely erode away our passion, our perspective, our sense of who we are and a sense of who God is. And our busyness causes us to see those things incorrectly. But our ability to stop and to rest begins to reframe our perspective as to who we are and who God is. Begins to restore and refresh our passions. Begins to restore and refresh our perspectives. And the single greatest thing that could be beneficial to you as you step home over Thanksgiving break is this. To learn to rest in a biblical way. Pull up some Netflix. Enjoy some time away. Enjoy the football. Enjoy family. Enjoy friends. But don't miss the opportunity to see the Lord himself in a fresh way. To lift your eyes to be reminded as to who he is, as he also is described as to who you are. That's our hope and that's our prayer for you, that you'd learn that not just as you step home at Thanksgiving, but eventually even as you transition out of college in which life is not built up of semesters and syllabuses that have complete finished markers, that life just continues to move in such a way that you don't get clear markers in which you're done. There's always more work-wise, there's always more family-wise, there's always going to be more in parenting, that there's always more to do. And unless you learn to begin to stop and to rest in college, it's only going to get harder as you step off. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we come before you and we confess, Lord, that we are not indispensable. And yet, Lord, we act as we are. We continue as if we are. We continue as if, Lord, if we stop, then nothing's going to happen. Sabbath is a reminder for us that when we stop, that you continue the work that you intend. That when we stop, that you continue the things that you've desired to do in our lives. And sometimes you get back to the things that you wanted to do. And so, Lord, I pray for these students as they go home over Thanksgiving. Lord, I pray that you grant them safe travels. I pray that you grant them the sweetest of times with family. I pray for many that have difficult family situations, Lord, that you would give them grace upon grace to navigate those and to represent you as a Christ follower but I pray as well that you'd give them a prolonged period of time to begin to explore what biblical true rest looks like. Not an evacuation, not a vacating, not an absolute leaving of all things of thinking about and watching and being mindful of what is most important. I pray as they stop, as they're still, Lord, I pray that they hear your voice. I pray that your spirit's leading would be louder. 
and you tug at their hearts, that you'd lift their gaze, that you'd allow them to see who you are and what it is that you desire for them. I pray you give them an opportunity to reflect back on a semester to see what you've been doing and how they've been a part of it or how they've at times crossed it and gone against it. I pray you give them some moments to be reflective, to hear your voice. I pray that you'd refresh their souls. I pray that you'd return back in December ready to finish the semester strong, but even more so with a little bit more of a clue of what it looks like to work hard and to rest well. With a little bit more of a clue of what it looks like to build a rhythm that's appropriate and healthy of work and rest. To take the Sabbath seriously, to take the command to stop and to rest seriously. Lord, we love you. We ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen.